I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. We're listening to Ideologically Unsound by Poison Girls, off of their 1979 album, Hex. Poison Girls, an English anarcho-punk band, will accompany us throughout. Ideologically Unsound. Our show today is Anarchy is Intersectional, learning from Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman was born to Orthodox Jewish parents in 1869 in Tsarist, Russia, and emigrated to the United States in 1885 with her half-sister. Goldman soon made her way to New York City with $5 and her sewing machine. Radicalized by the execution of the Haymarket Martyrs in 1887, who were found guilty of being anarchists, not for detonating a bomb, Goldman moved quickly toward the action that would make her, in the words of J. Edgar Hoover, the most dangerous anarchist in America, planning the attempted assassination of Henry Frick, union-busting manager of a Carnegie Steel plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania. But this propaganda of the deed turned public opinion against the striking workers and would mark Goldman as a terrorist in the eyes of state and national authorities. It's a useful designation. Immigrant, anarchist, agitator, other. Terrorist. Apply liberally. But she was a writer and orator of great distinction who could mesmerize crowds numbering in the thousands. And she was a celebrity anarchist who always made headline news. Goldman was a defender of the individual conscience against mass opinion. But an individual is never alone. Quote, The problem that confronts us today is how to be oneself and yet in oneness with others. This seems to me to be the basis upon which the mass and the individual, the true democrat and the true individuality, man and woman, can meet without antagonism and opposition. Unquote. Today we're joined by Kathy Ferguson, author of Emma Goldman, Political Thinking in the Streets. She's a professor of political science and women's studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and she hails originally from the small town of Lapel, Indiana. She joined us via Skype. And now, anarchy is intersectional on Interchange on WFHP. There is, uh, I suppose, a cartoon version of Emma Goldman. If anybody, like if people know about Emma Goldman at all, it's more as a particular kind of radical, um, uh, radical known for, uh, maybe one particular instance or, uh, it's, it's not the, 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 I guess, far more complete version you write about in your book, but em, Emma Goldman has, uh, a more of a cartoon characterization to most of us, yeah? Probably. So I think she, it, she is probably the best known anarchist, uh, in the United States among people who aren't anarchists mm-hmm. or aren't particularly interested in anarchism. Um, and maybe because of her, um, connection to Alexander Berkman in the effort to assassinate Henry Frick in 1892, um, or uh, maybe because of her opposition to World War I, she spent two years in prison for that. Um, but I think the over the, the 70 some, or well, let's say uh, 60 years of her, 55 years of her activist career probably aren't 
well known. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, I think the the cartoon version of history that we are um used to most of the time, right? Uh, she certainly occupies the anarchist angle for for many people. I'm not sure exactly anymore what anarchism is to people in the United States at least. Uh I think there not too long ago there was a movie out called V for Vendetta which I think was a comic book. Uh, or a gra- excuse me, a graphic novel originally, and that might be what anarchism is to so many people. Uh, but anarchism is a specific thing, uh, many kinds of specific things, I suppose. But let's let's give anarchism a little flesh, if you don't mind. Okay, sure. Well, I think the best way to understand anarchism is that it's a family of ideas. It's not a one line fits all. It's a family of ideas, like any complex political ideas, has a lot of genealogies that mix into it. Um, and, but in general, what they tend to have in common is the idea that society will be at its best and people will be um, happiest and most um, able to live good lives if they are self-governing. And so a free individual in a free community is an anarchist ideal. Hmm. Now, uh, is there a specific kind of anarchism that Emma Goldman would have ascribed to, or that did, did she have a focus on any particular tenets? Uh, her main um, sources of uh, uh, influence mm-hmm. within the anarchist movement would have been Peter Kropotkin, uh, Pierre Jean Proudhon, um, uh, Ernest Landauer, uh, Nietzsche, interestingly, mm-hmm. uh, Max Stirner. So she read eclectically um, from a variety of sources, but sort of back in that day, anarchism typically was divided into the people called communist anarchists and the people called individualist anarchists. And she drew from both. Hmm. There was a, an effort to create something that its advocates called anarchism without adjectives, which was let's get past the standoff between the more communist oriented who were anti-capitalist and the more individualist-oriented, let's get past that standoff and see how we can link them. And she was more part of that. Hmm. So not so anti-capitalist then? Or? Oh, no, totally anti-capitalist. Absolutely, yeah. totally anti-capitalist. But one of the ironies is that the anarchist tradition that is sometimes claimed by right-wing libertarians today was also not pro-capitalist. They advocated for the individual ownership of property, but they they didn't advocate on behalf of corporations. They were more in the abolitionist tradition and sort of the 40 acres and a mule idea only for everybody uh, because they thought that individual uh, ownership of property and tools was an important way for people to um, develop their freedom. Mm. But uh, they certainly were not pro pro-capitalist in the sense of pro-corporate. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Kathy Ferguson, and our show centers on Emma Goldman, once called the most dangerous anarchist in America, by J. Edgar Hoover. It's one of those things that we have trouble, I think, or again, I, I say we in the sense of trying to understand how probably um, a United States citizen or student might come to this and try to understand how does this fit into a worldview that I'm used to. You know, uh, again, uh, uh, it, we, we see it as a, a, a bogeyman ideal usually, right? Uh, we're afraid of anarchists and anarchists at the time, uh, were, were made 
to be afraid of in a sense, you know, uh, in terms of the, the propaganda against anarchists or anar anarchists were terrorists and uh, immigrant foreign others, etc. So uh, anarchist, uh, t the anarchism itself takes on a terrorist um, as, a, as an implication. That's it's certainly the case that in the eyes of the establishment, anarchists were terrorists. Anarchists were scary. They were foreign. They were dirty. They were uh, sexually unclean. Um, that was the image that was produced and circulated by the state and and its uh, its allies. At the same time, I think if, if for a contemporary individual trying to get a grip on anarchism outside that frame. My advice is look at what they did. Uh, don't just focus on what they said, but look at what they did. It's always been ironic to me that people say all the time, oh, anarchism, it's such a great idea in theory, but it would never work in practice. I actually think it's the opposite. The theory needs some work, but the practice is amazing. Hmm. And that what anarchists have done is to build a really remarkable set of alternative communities and institutions. Um, I always tell people if they are looking for something to read about anarchism in the United States, start with Paul Averick's book, The Modern School Movement, because anarchists invented um, a set of alternative schools that were remarkable. They lasted for a long time in many cases. They were very successful um, and they influenced the educational system of a lot of places. Uh, anarchists were very good at uh, creating publications of various kinds. They were prolific in establishing uh, journals, newsletters, uh, nowadays websites, uh, blogs. Um, the anarchists were very good at organizing unions. As you mentioned, the IWW was an anarchist is an anarchist union. Uh, so those are a those are accomplishments mm -hmm. uh they're not just claims mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah uh, it's again uh how we we do our best to to not find out those things you know it's a, it's a thumbnail sketch world that we we're fed in the first place but then it's it becomes uh um hardly are we able to even breathe the word word without trying to have to defend this idea of you know no government uh, you know uh, Violence run amok, you know, aggravated, uh, people, uh, guns everywhere. I'll, of course, there are guns everywhere already, but, um, you know, free sex in the streets, you know, all, or all sorts of things that sort of, um, we're, we're confronted with in these terms. Uh, again, it's an, it's a fairly easy, uh, bogeyman to, to sort of trot out. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and it's unfortunate. Uh, obviously, reading your book is a uh, your book is fascinating. I I, I really liked uh, uh, every chapter and and found it, um, and as well as as reading Emma Goldman's essays in that 1910 collection, uh, anarchism and other essays. Uh, uh, I don't find anything in Emma Goldman's essays that you wouldn't find in you know general leftist. Uh, essays that you'd read today in Huffington Post or anything like that. You know, there, there are definitely, um, consistencies across time now that we, uh, I think that you note in your book too. There's a real, um, similarity in many ways between now and then. Yeah, that's true. In terms of sort of another gilded age, um, unrestricted corporate wealth, the vast expansion of inequality, um, the sort of uh, relentless 
beat of self-improvement mm-hmm. that if you don't flir- flourish, it's your fault. Um, and um, also, also hatred of immigrants and fear of immigrants. Goldman was uh, put into exile. Her citizenship was stripped from her through some pretty bogus legal maneuvers on the part of J. Edgar Hoover and others in the nascent uh, organization that became the FBI. Uh, so I, a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's uh, let's talk about Emma Goldman a little bit too, in terms of her specifically and the perception we have of her. You you write throughout, uh, and this is a common, I guess, a commonplace understanding of her as being the the most dangerous anarchist. Uh, and and you you point this out. I think there's some confusion about how people either call her the most dangerous woman in the world or the most most dangerous uh, anarchist. Uh, I think the quote was that she was the most dangerous anarchist. Um, but well, we, the, go ahead. the most famous person who has said that or who did say that was J. Edgar Hoover, mm-hmm. and he did not say she was a dangerous woman. He said she was a dangerous anarchist, mm-hmm. and she was grouped with Berkman, that the two of them were the most dangerous anarchists in America. So uh, others, you know, people have said different things. But when people quote Hoover as saying that she she was called a dangerous woman, that's just wrong. That's not what he said. And I think it's interesting that that quote, dangerous woman, is uh, sort of more circulated because in a sense it, 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 de-anarchizes her. It <laughs> locates her more within feminism. Mm. And it also makes Hoover look slightly ridiculous because he was afraid of a woman. And in a patriarchal context, that looks weak on his part. Um, whereas uh, it seems to me that he was, that the state had reasons to be afraid of anarchists, that anarchists were uh, a worthy opponent. Mm. Uh, the When we talk about opponents too, the state uh, you make this nice, um, a comparison between anarchist violence and state violence in the book as well. Uh, and I think that's important. A lot of times we, when we talk about opponents and enemies and, and these kinds of things and we, and the state itself conjures up through its propaganda these, these ideas of, of scary people coming to blow you up. Uh, and we do obviously have, uh, people blowing people up in this country that aren't obviously anarchists, right? So there, there are, there are things that, that we kind of blend into it, to each other, but you make a, a really strong point and you at least make a very visually uh, um, arresting point too with your book. You've got lists of uh, attempted uh, and successful, I suppose, anarchist uh, assassinations of particular leaders, uh, but corporate leaders or business leaders and, and world leaders. And then you, you put that after that comes a list of uh, basically, uh, like strike breaking, uh, violence by the state and, uh, entities like the Pinkertons. That's right. Yeah. So talk, talk a little bit about that. I, I think that generally the idea that, that violence is the purview of the state, I think is kind of understood by some, by most of us, I would imagine that that's like, that's legitimate violence. Or we, we see it that way. And yet we, we're fed this fear of, I guess, what would you call it? Irrational violence or violence against our way of life, something like that, that we put on the other side. And even if it's small and insignificant comp- in, in comparison, I think it has to do with the violence we're encouraged to be afraid of and the violence we're encouraged to accept. Mm-hmm. And, um, so part of the reason that I put those two lists in there was that I, I wanted to sort of I bent over backwards to find every example 
of when an anarchist had used physical violence against another human. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty small group of events and a pretty small number of people, which isn't to say I defend it, but Mm -hmm. I'm trying to put it in context with the many, many, many times greater number of times that workers were killed or maimed doing something that today we recognize as lawful. They were organizing strikes. They were organizing unions. They were on walkout. Um, they were distributing um, anti-capitalist information. Um, so the, um, the weight of state violence is so heavy compared with the, with the negligible weight of the violence of protest that I think we have to really look carefully at what it is we're encouraged to fear. Yeah, it's it's a shocking. It's it's really quite shocking. But it's a media construction as well. And this is another part of the book and a part of the period. You know, the the creation of media narratives uh, are a part of this also, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, all these so, things kind of come together in that period in a, in such a, a crazy chaotic uh, way that um, that it's hard to kind of tear apart some of of these particular instances but there's a there's a um just like we imagine today a kind of thirst or lust for sensational stories and and this this is one of those you know anarchism and 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 blood in the streets and especially after haymarket and i'll ask you about haymarket in a minute also so um it is pretty it's pretty fascinating you know that this is the diet of of uh I, uh, I guess you just have to call it propaganda. I think people are, are, are sort of confused by calling your own government's, uh, vast imagery, you know, uses of corporate imagery as well, but media imagery and government Im- imagery as propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, so ooh, this you, I think, is also called the classical age of terrorism. Why, why is it that called that? Well, the, this was when governments, um, uh, organized uh, global police forces, essentially, when there were a series of conventions, um, and by governments, I mean, mostly European and, and North American, um, that there were there were a series of conventions where largely um, efforts at assassinating, uh, or sometimes successful efforts at assassinating uh, national leaders were uh, linked to global political movements like anarchism. And so um, the 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 notion of terrorism as opposed to killing. I mean, there's there's different ways to talk about when somebody dies, right? And so to call it terrorism, we see that all the time today, where if violence by someone who could be identified as Muslim is terrorism, and violence from some white guy is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the the that anarchists were seen as the sort of the the forefront of terrorism because it was a handy way to rationalize the creation of global police forces. Hmm. Were these labor oriented as well across the globe? I know that we talk about it being uh, it, it does it does become a labor dispute, a labor va- battle that the anarchist stands in for in some sense. These are these are un-American anarchists. You know, these are foreign immigrant. These this labor dispute isn't about labor; it's about foreign anarchist elements. Yeah. So it seems to me labor is always in play. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 was always the sort of the great danger 
that that ordinary working people would come together around the anti-capitalist agenda mm-hmm. of anarchists and socialists. It's time for a break. This is Fear of Freedom by Poison Girls, off of their 1982 album, Where's the Pleasure? When we come back, the deed and the thought, which is chicken and which is egg in Emma Goldman's thinking. Stay with us for more with scholar Kathy Ferguson when Interchange returns. Support for Interchange and WFHB comes from the Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for WFHB and Interchange also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Anarchy is Intersectional, Learning from Emma Goldman. Our guest is scholar and author Kathy Ferguson, who has written the book Emma Goldman, Political Thinking in the Streets. In this segment, we explore just what thinking in the streets means. Do we act from our theories or theorize our actions? Let's, uh, let's talk uh, about, uh, I think, what has been said to have radicalized Emma Goldman, and, I'm, and, and please help us understand what radicalized means, but the, the, hay, the Haymarket bombing or the Haymarket martyrs being executed for that bombing in Chicago. Okay. This was a really pivotal, 
pivotal moment in American radical history because it wasn't just Goldman, a whole generation of people, young people especially, were watching this case where the the violence, the people who were being tried with uh, for for the most part were not at the event. Mm-hmm. And the um the the lawyers who were prosecuting them and the judge admitted they weren't and admitted that it was anarchism that was on trial. And these people just were the unfortunate stand-ins. Mm-hmm. And uh so the standards of evidence were pretty much non-existent. The the judicial and uh, legal behavior was capricious um, and sort of laughable. Mm-hmm. And the public relations surrounding it were hysterical, mm. that these were dangerous men, that they had to be killed in order to keep us safe. Um, one of the th- there, they were uh, pictures of the Haymarket um, um, uh, arrestees were circulated and, the truth was they looked a lot like the guys on the jury. Mm. Uh, but the the context of it was so alarmist. Look at these dangerous people. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that combination of, of public hysteria with legal irresponsibility um, and uh, was – was kind of transparent to a lot of readers. And so people watched this, they hung on this, they thought, oh, surely they will not be convicted. Surely this will not happen. And when it did, uh, Goldman and others said, okay, I know what I have to do now. They, the sort of the road to radicalism was paved with the outrage and disbelief that the Haymarket convictions inspired. Yeah, that uh, Haymarket was uh, a bomb went off in the midst of a police force that had uh, come in in really large numbers to a, a very peaceful demonstration at the time, as far as I recall. Yeah, right? it was essentially over. The demonstration yeah. was pretty much over. Most people were leaving. The mayor had already been there. This is in Chicago. The mayor had already been there and said, oh, this is fine. They're, they're not dangerous. Let's mm-hmm. all go home. But uh, then the police come back and a bomb goes off and – uh, there is different historical accounts of who might have done it, but it isn't really known. Um, and it's also not known how many people died because people who weren't police and th- thus weren't counted hmm. were also uh, maimed or killed. And um, so it was so unnecessary. I mean, the thing was over. People were leaving. Just let them go home. Mm-hmm. So the point of it was certainly not to keep public order. The point was to create public disorder. Yeah, that's often the, it seems to be often the case when the police get involved in those things. So the, um, and it was Albert Parsons is the one person I think most people know, uh, who, who was one of the Haymarket martyrs, uh, husband to Lucy Parsons as well. I will, we'll have a show on Lucy Parsons, uh, coming up here also. Um, so let's, let's turn, I think, to some specifics of, of your book and Goldman and the idea of her as a political thinker, a theorist, an activist, and how these things go together. Your book is subtitled, um, well, um, I'm blanking. Oh, political, excuse me. Your book is subtitled Political Thinking in the Streets. And this is important in, in the context of Emma Goldman and, and how she, she was who she was in, in those moments. That's right. I, I, 
came up with that subtitle and with the idea of, of her thinking of her as doing located theory mm-hmm. um, in order to try to get past the idea that theory and practice are two different things, that in a sense they're opposites, that theory is thinking and practice is doing. And that's never been a very good understanding of politics, that people are always combining them and that the way we think is a kind of doing. It's, a, it's an active engagement with the world. It's not just the passive recipient of a reception of the world. So it's never a very good way to think to distinguish theory from practice in such a an absolute way. But for Goldman, it's a particularly useless way to think because her thinking about politics was f- formed in, so I colloquially say the streets, mm-hmm. meaning the the day-to-day activism of unions and publications and education and free speech movements and feminist movements that she that it's not like she thought it all out and then she went and did it the doing produced the thinking hmm. so that's uh, that is important and it's again when we when we discuss historical figures too it's uh, it's kind of hard to i guess understand their dailiness also right to understand what's going on in their life from day to day and and the things that they're doing emma goldman herself gave hundreds and hundreds of speeches right uh, spoke to th- to hundreds of maybe a hundred thousand people in one year alone, uh, and and as much working to educate uh, speeches to educate as much as anything else, and people were attending these. So, you know, it's not like she's a a, str- a stranger and nobody knew who she was, or that that these ideas weren't um, valid ideas that other people agreed with as well. That's right. That's right. She was a household word. Everybody knew who Emma Goldman was. Um, and sometimes they were horrified and sometimes they were intrigued or any other n- number of other responses. But she was certainly well known, uh, in part, as you say, because for 20 years she did this cross-country lecture tour where she'd basically get on a train and she'd stop everywhere along the way where there was enough of a local anarchist, anarchist community to host her. Um, and they, someone would have to rent the hall and someone would make up the publicity and, um, you know, someone would find a place for her to stay often on the couch of a comrade later as, um, she got older, more often in a hotel. And, um, so she would sort of be a presence. People would know Emma Goldman is back and it, her, her, her presence in public life across a variety of contexts was sort of ordinary. Mm. Okay. And, and then another thing that I think made anarchism um, a part of public life is that anarchists made alliances with others that are not as likely to be demonized today. For example, advocates of freedom of speech, uh, advocates of birth control, advocates of various kinds of civil, civil liberties, uh, pl- plus union organizers, plus socialists of various kinds, uh, civil libertarians, that that when you look at what anarchists did in things like the birth control movement being a good example, they weren't sort of the political crazy people. They were reliable uh, comrades who formed coalitions with people with whom they didn't agree on everything, but with whom they had a particular issue in common. Hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest today is Kathy Ferguson, author of the new book, Emma Goldberg, Political Thinking in the Streets. 
Well, one thing that you note throughout is that um, Emma Goldman was uh, not uh, particularly interested in, in reforms that uh, I assume maybe this is a commonality for anarchists uh, across the board, but that that you have to uh, revolutionize in some way. I'm not exactly sure how the revolution happens, um, and that's always a question, I suppose, but that, you know, reforms were were not going to make a difference. And one, one, one in particular, and it's an easy one to talk about, is, is suffrage itself. You know, it's one of the main uh, arguments for how this co- this country kind of tells some of its history, right? We talk about uh, getting the vote, um, um, where uh, at some, at one point, uh, you know, o- only white men with property vote, and then white men vote, and then uh, uh, in Reconstruction, black men with property can vote, and then um, at some point, uh, we move on to women, <laughs> and the question throughout is what does this matter to emma goldman suffrage was a fetish you know is not something that would get any get you anywhere you would actually just be a you know participating in your own dominance at that point your own oppression yeah no she did th- think that one of my one of the things i've learned from studying goldman is that the uh her adamant dismissal of reform is just a dead end and also a kind of pacifier of uh, of people who might otherwise push for greater reform if they weren't bought off by minor change. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that that it's more complicated than that, and I think Goldman really oversimplified the relationship between reform and revolution in her writing, and that sort of maybe ironically in her activism, her actions, the the relationship was more. Um, complex. For example, she wanted prostitution to be decriminalized. Well, that's a legal change. You have to get the state to do something. Um, she wanted, all the anarchists wanted their publications to be sent through the mail. Um, and under the Comstock laws, their uh, anarchist publications were declared obscene and were kept from the mail and or kept from the mail in any affordable fashion. And so, well, how do you change that? You have to get the state to do something different. So the logical implication of many of the things they were doing is that sometimes you have to engage the state. Sometimes a a relatively minor reform is still worth doing because it helps you move in the direction you want to go. And yet she never could quite say that. (laughs) She was, you know, she always wanted to say revolution or nothing. Um, and I think up in, until the 19, in, well, until after the Russian Revolution, she and Berkman and others didn't quite know what they meant by that. Um, it, and then they saw a revolution that quickly turned bad for anarchism and became uh, a, a worse form of state uh, relatively quickly. And it really provoked a rethinking. And in the 20s and 30s, she and Berkman, especially Berkman, wrote um, a lot of m- more thoughtful things about what anarchism could do to to enhance the possibility of a liberating human revolution rather than just another issuing in of a new master. Uh, and it had a lot to do with preparing people that you you are able to be someone who can live a self-governing uh life within a self-governing community by practicing. Hmm. And so schools 
and uh, anarchist communities and anarchist publications became the sites of trying to live an anarchist life so that more people would practice. So that when an opportunity came to overthrow an oppressive state, that people would have an idea what to do because they'd been doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, those are those are interesting things, and they're they're again things that are far from un- our, I think our understanding at this point. We'd have to I think re-engage with with practice of any kind of politics at this point. You know, we'd have to relearn what practice uh, in the streets, as you say, is uh, in a day to day way too. As we've kind of uh, I guess put all of our uh, po- politics into a divisive. Um, propaganda politics online or in the media and then don't actually do any voting, whether that would be useful or not. <laughs> so, um, you know, we've, we've sort of gone away from understanding how to practice politics anymore in many ways. And I think there are, of course, movements now that have been strong. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement seems strong, uh, and it's a great example. They have to do education as well, obviously. That, this is a key factor. It's a key factor in the 50s and 60s as well, trying to educate, uh, while you were, uh, protesting in some sense, you had to have people who knew what they were talking about. This is, this is a key strategy all, all across. You know, any, any revolutionary practice is about educating to be prepared for those things. So, but we do have a, I think, a much different world today where much of our time is, is taken up by, uh, let's just call them entertaining distractions. Right. No, I think that- I also think there's a certain kind of disdain for the politics of of what I what I guess we could call call radical practice because it it it's not as likely to uh, to issue in a set of demands. Mm. And I think the Occupy movement is a really good example of this. Occupy was anarchist in the sense that what they did was they showed what they wanted by what they did. Mm-hmm. They they lived differently. They organized the com- communities that maintained themselves and governed themselves and encountered the power structure around them in a way that didn't just say this is this structure is bad, but rather exemplified what an alternative would look like. I think the Standing Rock protests also, I think a lot of indigenous protests are based on the notion that we don't just issue a set of demands, we live otherwise. It's time for another break. This is Abort the System, another from Poison Girls. This one off of the 1995 compilation, Statement, the complete recordings, 1977 to 1989. Next up, Emma Goldman, the essayist, as intersectional thinker. Stay with us. The woman has a body that she must call her own. They treat her like a flower pot for a seed he is sown. The woman makes a baby, feeds him till he's grown. Those who feed on fresh and blood break his spirit down. Fill his brains of poison, teach him left and right. How to hate his brother they teach in black and white. The woman makes a baby, there's a big strong son. Those who feed on soldier boys take him for the gun. The woman has a body that she must call her own. They treat her like a flower pot for a seed that he has sown. Her spirit is free, free to question. A woman's body is her own consider The subject of his senses mystify his mind. He forgets where he came from. He's deaf and dumb and blind. They'll page him in the factory, tie down his desire, milk his body of his strength to stoke another fire. Turn him loose in the bull ring to fight with tooth and claw. Kick his balls of punishment if he questions what it's for. Tell him he's got freedom as he struggles on the leash. Fill his mouth with violence. Tell him it's free speech. Woman has a body that she must call her own. The creature like a flower pot for a seed that he has sown. Your spirit is free to take or refuse. A woman's body is her own. A woman's right. 
Support for Interchange and WFHB comes from the Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for WFHB and Interchange also comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. That she must call her own The teacher like a flower pot For seed that he has sown The spirit is free Choice is her action A woman's body is her own Abortion must be an option They buy her for a nursery Where a baby will grow Treat her like a flower pot For a seed he has sown Cage her in a doll's house Tie down her desire Cheat her spirit of its strength Stoke another fire If she talks of freedom How it all began Those who know will tell her That she should have been a man They deny her body They deny her mind She forgets where she came from She's deaf and dumb and blind The woman has the body That she must call her own But they treat her like a flower pot For a seed that he has sown Your spirit is free Consider abortion Welcome back I'm Doug Storm This is Interchange For our final segment on Emma Goldman with author Kathy Ferguson, we'll turn to the writing published in the 1910 collection, Anarchism and Other Essays, with a focus on the essay, The Traffic in Women, in which Ferguson says that Goldman invented an early version of intersectionality by refusing to identify a single cause as more basic than others to explain prostitution. Capitalism, immigration, family structures, and religious authority are all implicated in this economic desperation. So let's move to feminism, uh, if we can here. It's an important, a very important part of this, an important part of um, Emma Goldman's work as an anarchist uh, is also that she's a feminist. And, and it's said in your book and um, that this is one of her... One of the things that, you know, anarchism or this, this kind of thing owes to Emma Goldman in some sense is bringing feminism into anarchism. Yeah, I think that many of her commentators before me have said that I'm agreeing with a host of other scholars, that that's really one of her biggest contributions. And now, looking back at it, you think, well, yeah, obviously, if you're going to be against hierarchy and you're going to be against the authority, unearned power mm-hmm. of one group of people over another, then clearly you're going to be against patriarchy too. But that wasn't obvious Mm. uh, to a lot of the mostly men who were giving voice to anarchist ideas, that they were uh, either ready to naturalize uh, men's authority over women, or they were ready to say something kind of empty and comforting like, well, after we after the revolution, when yeah. we've eliminated capitalism and the state and uh, the church and so forth, then we'll pay attention mm-hmm. to gender. But until then, you know, just stand by your man. And uh, Goldman just said, no, it's not going to work that way. Uh, it's not because the the way that power of men over women works is intertwined with the others. It's not like it's a separate thing requiring a separate um uh, analysis that that's the whole point of intersectional thinking which goldman anticipated by about a hundred years 
that's the whole point of intersectional thinking is that you think things in relationship to other things. And she was very good at that. Hmm. Yeah. So one thing, I guess one entry into Goldman for anyone who wants to take it is obviously that book of essays, uh, Anarchism and Other Essays, I think it's called, uh, mm -hmm. again in 1910. So this is, would you say that she's at the height of her power or, and the, or the height of her, um, uh, I mean, this is, uh, 1910. I don't remember how old she, she lived into the forties. She lived to 1940 and she was 70 when she died. Mm -hmm. So, uh, this is a period where she's obviously, um, I think she's, she thinks she's done the best she can in this medium too, right? These essays are, are considered. She's, she's worked hard on them. Uh, they're, they're, uh, she said she has a really good preface to the book as well and trying to say what anarchism, like to, to actually challenge I guess the challengers of her, her uh, essay on anarchism, uh, in terms of, you know, there's no prescription, right? There's no, what do we do? Uh, you know, she, she addresses this issue, but, uh, primarily throughout, you've got gold, like uh, Goldman's greatest hits in some sense, right? So it's anti, you know, against prostitution, against capitalism, against, uh, marriage, uh, you know, all these features of our, uh, hierarchical, patriarchal, uh, society, uh, come out and, and are under scrutiny here. And as you say, they kind of all go together, right? They're, they're all linked in how they work. There's no prostitution without poverty. Um, poverty comes from an economic order. Poverty comes from a hierarchical order. These kinds of things all have to be addressed together. And she does this really well. Um, you bring to your, your chapter on feminism five of these particular essays as well. Uh, one you find to be the best, I suppose, traffic in women. And mm -hmm. it's important here, you know, we started the, the, the conversation today with trying to understand a little bit about context. And so you can read the uh, traffic in um, women without knowing much about its context. It's pretty straightforward, but there are a lot of things that, so it's there, the, it starts out with the, the white slave trade. And you have to, as, as a modern reader, I suppose, go, well, what, what's she talking about? What, you know, what does this mean to her in this period, right? So your book does a, uh, for me anyway, it's a really great, uh, great way to understand she's actually addressing very, uh, a very, um, common or not a common, uh, like she's addressing the moment where things like this are, are being talked about, you know, uh, right. and so the question you say is, you know, why is this happening now? Why is this question happening? Now there's always been prostitution, you know, there's always been this slave trade. So, uh, uh again, trade in uh, women. And, and so the question is how, you know, I'm stumbling here. I don't mean to the, your book really opened that essay to me. Right. So I was able to, to really understand a little bit more what she's doing in her moment. Uh, as opposed to, yeah, as opposed to me just reading and saying, well, these are standard tropes at this point, or of course this is what this is, or I understand all these things readily at this point, 100 years on, mm -hmm. right? But in the moment, she's addressing very particular issues of uh, a media, it's a media response, it's a response to how people are talking about uh, a particular muckraking story that was put out at the time, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, what you call a moral panic period as well. So tell us a little about a, a little bit about what's happening then that, that sort of prompts these essays. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad you asked that because I think that's where Goldman is at her best is where she's weaving her radical analysis into the particular situation that she finds herself. And that it's, it's not that first she, as I said before, it's not that she 
thought it through and then she went out and found a, an example. She's living through a set of, of events that she, that the living in, generates the thinking. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's not, it, it's kind of easy to read Goldman today and say, Oh yeah, I already knew that. I already knew that. Mm-hmm. And first of all, forget, well, she's writing a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that many people could say they already knew that then, but also not, to, it's, it's easy to overlook the specificity of the, um, issues that she was responding to and the events that were provoking her. So the, um, white slave traffic was a way for, um, reporters and judges, um, and lawmakers and religious leaders to talk about an alleged danger to innocent young white women who were being preyed upon by, and then fill in the blanks. Right. Sometimes it was debauched aristocrats. Sometimes it was, um, dark, you know, evil, um, immigrant men. Sometimes it was corrupt officials. Um, and that the, the whole idea that it was a white slave traffic, of course, Goldman points out because she's looking around her at her society is that, um, the, is that women who were forced into prostitution, what they had in common was that they were white. It was that they were poor mm-hmm. and that, um, the, many of them were married. Um, they were, many of them worked other jobs, uh, for wages that were not livable and they supplemented the income that their themselves and their families needed by selling their sexual labor. So she's, she's anchoring her, she's taking the panic, the moral panic over the endangerment of, of young white women, girls, usually as they were described. And she's saying, okay, let's look racially at this. This is almost, this is a, not a white problem. This is a capitalist problem. And then she's also looking at immigration and saying that, uh, like at the time it was thought that most many or most of these women who were being forced into prostitution were Jewish. And she just goes and studies immigration. And she says, look, most Jewish girls immigrate with their families. They don't come alone. And so they're not very vulnerable to being recruited by traffickers uh, because they have, even even in very poor families, they've got some kind of protection. So she just very methodically did her research. And, and it's one of the things that I really, as a professor, I like that about Goldman. She did her research. Hmm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is about Emma Goldman, who commented on lean-in feminism in 1919, saying, The feminists foolishly believe that having a man's job or professions makes them free. Yeah, she does walk through each of these particular institutions from capitalism to, to the, to the church, uh, Christianity. Well, Christianity is on her, on her bad list, uh, in, in, in all these essays for the most part. Uh, and, yeah. um, but the way in which, you know, prostitution or selling your, 
uh, as selling sexuality, selling your sexual favors or selling, having sex with, uh, you know, begins or at least in some measure goes back to religious rights and, and the church itself. And she talks about, you know, a pope in particular, you know, actually, uh, building a brothel in a sense, right? Where he, he gets right. a, a really nice income out of it. Uh, um, you know, uh, so it is one of those things that, like I just wondered to myself, how how did there was there any such thing as a moral panic that didn't didn't have to start with and you know with the intention of starting the moral panic, right? Yeah. yeah, moral panics have to be started, right? And someone has the intention of doing so in order to create usually right in order to make new laws to you know hinder or oppress other people so it's a it's an interesting insight into how those things happen um but it is it is important i think to that she does do those things you know so a lot of essays we get are um you know these things are not right they're easy to say they're capitalistic or they're easy to say this is an oppressed class um but here as you say she goes through it and she says here's some facts you know here's some figures you know and a lot of these as you say are already married women so of course marriage is not the great institution that it's supposed to be right these are these women are not protected by their husbands you know this this institution does not protect uh women from prostitution oh and by the way you know they're often raped in marriage and by the way you know um that this is an actual marriage is itself a prostitution generally exactly yeah it's it's a good essay i agree um all of them are pretty interesting to to so if i had to recommend anything i suppose it would be this particular book uh, are there other things to read that she's written or you no know, if i was going to tell somebody where to start i would say start with the autobiography mm, living okay. my it's long and it is a page turner. Okay. And um, it is uh, Goldman always located herself in the context of the anarchist movement. Mm. And that's why in my book I do that. That I think that while she was, was important to feminism, to civil liberties, to union organizing, to anti-war movements, it was always through the anarchist movement that she did that. So I appreciate her self-understanding. Mm. I think it's most useful one for us to have. And, you know, like she just knew so many people. Right. And so it's a, it's a great, it's a great read. That's, that's, that is interesting about her too. Yeah. She's, she's a, like you say, she's well known and she's a celebrity. Yeah. Well, there's a, it was funny when I was reading your book at, um, and I don't want to necessarily harp on, uh, like we need to harp on Donald Trump anymore, but the, the issue of, you know, that was brought up many times is the, there's a large percentage of white women, um, who voted for Trump, e even in the face of everything Trumpian, um, from grabbing private parts to just being a horrible, um, person who has uh, now he has 19 or so uh, claims against him uh, for sexual uh, abuse or misconduct uh, but on page I think it's 259 to 60 you write something that I thought just described the issue for the most part right so um, let's see it says Goldman tries to understand women who are not anarchists, not feminists, not radical in any way, by examining their loves. She identifies elements of what we might call the patriarchal sublime, the big, vague, potent signifiers that defy our capacity to fully comprehend them while beckoning us with their promise. These big ideas do not simply brainwash women who are passively receiving their message. Rather, Goldman insists they involve women in extensive activities, 
contributing the active ideological and material labor that sustains the edifices each fetish needs in order to thrive. Each ideological arena offers women a relationship to an authoritative figure, religious and political leaders, husbands and fathers, God. So you, you, I think you describe, um, you know, the reason it seems that women generally vote for their oppressors. One of the things I like about Goldman is that she doesn't talk about the people she opposes as being brainwashed. And when she does say that, she doesn't mean that they just sat there and somebody came and washed their brains. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing that happens to you. It's a thing you do. Um, so that having ideas that are dangerous to yourself and others is in an active engagement with the world. So those of us who are educators, if we want to change that, we don't just tell people to change. They have to be actively engaged in some other way. Uh, and so Goldman is tracing the active engagements of women with churches, with uh, the suffrage movement, with marriage, um, in order to say that these are ways that love and hope get recruited to sustain agendas that actually hurt the people who are coming to them. Mm. And to almost to, uh, to point out the, the rationale behind that too, that how that serves, you know, to create the situation of prostitution, how it serves to create the, the thing that it's against, right? Uh, vi <laughs> vice police tend to create the vice itself. Yep. The church needs sin. The police need crime. Right. The, She's she's very good at showing us how institutions that claim to fight a thing become dependent on that thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, the um, I, I do think also she notes uh, the what what again I, I think we experience today, and it's a, a, a it was a kind of a deja vu deja vu moment reading through these as well when when she uh, your book when she expresses some issues about feminists who are interested in in being equal with men, equal in professions, equal in that way. Uh, and she says in, in a letter from 1919, the feminists foolishly believe that having a man's job or professions makes them free. And, you know, this is what we've, we've encountered fairly recently too, right? We've got the lean in movement and the idea still of, of having a man's life being the way to be equal. Yeah. Goldman would have no patience at all with that movement or it's um, manifestations a hundred years ago because she said, you're forgetting men are oppressed too. Mm -hmm. That capitalism oppresses everybody. Uh, it pays off a few of them a little better than the rest. Right. But it's an inherently exploitive system. That's our show. We'll close with one last song by Poison Girls. Are You Happy Now? Released as a single in 1983. Thanks to Kathy Ferguson for joining us today via Skype to talk about Emma Goldman's political thinking in the streets and to show us how feminism practices what anarchism preaches, to quote Lynn Farrell. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer, and Bryce Martin is our studio engineer. He also suggested we highlight Poison Girls today. Our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. Hungry, hungry too.